0: Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubinstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature, how will climate change impact investments, There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Jeff Gibbs' film about renewable energy growth and sustainability have shocked, angered, and gotten critical acclaims. Planet of the Humans... The premise is that renewable energy is carbon-intensive, we can't keep going, and wind and solar will not save us. Is this true? We have brought together expert panel to discuss the film and the future of the human race. Walter von Dieren, Jochen Wermuth, Kingsmill Bond, Hunter Lovins, Sandrine Dixon. Let's, fought, let's dig into this. This is Radical Truth. Starting with Hunter because he had to get up the earliest of all of us um, to join this um, webinar. Please briefly introduce yourself, who you are, what to do, and what was your impression of the film?
1: My name is Hunter Lovins. I am president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. We work with companies, communities, countries, helping them implement more regenerative practices profitably. The film sucked. It was wrong in essentially every particular. It is particularly misleading in that it gives the impression that renewable energy cannot meet our needs for energy services. That's just wrong. Now, essentially, everywhere in the world, renewable energy is cheaper than any other kind of energy, any of the fossils. For example, last summer, General Electric walked away from a natural gas peaking plant in California that had 20 years of life left on it because they said it can't compete with solar. El Paso Electric in southern New Mexico just won what I've been calling the Walmart Award for Everyday Low Price. 1.49 cents per kilowatt hour for utility scale solar. Here in Colorado, our coal loving utility said, we need 1100 megawatts, Uh, y'all bid. And they knew natural gas would win. Gas came in at 4 cents a kilowatt hour. Wind came in a bit below two, solar a bit above two, wind plus solar plus storage, three cents a kilowatt hour. When you add storage to the renewables, you have fixed firm baseload power, it's over. The era of fossil energy is over. The film is just wrong. So what what else is there to say? The thing that annoyed me the most about it was they're trashing authentic heroes like Bill McKibben. Bill has dedicated his life to making a better world for all of us. It's just wrong for the film to trash him.
0: Thank you. Uh, Sandrine, can you hear us? I see you there.
2: I can finally hear you. Apologies for that.
0: Okay. Sandrine dixon DeCleb, please tell the audience who you are. What you do, and what was your impression of the movie?
2: Well, I am wearing several different hats, I must say. Um, president of the Club of Rome, alongside my co-president Mampela Raffele, the Club of Rome, an organization, of course, that has been around for fifty years. Very surprised that the Club of Rome was actually not even mentioned in the film, but we'll get back to that later. Um, The other roles that I have are very much focused in advising the European institutions on sustainable finance, climate change, and renewables policy. So again, we'll have some massive criticism, very similar to Hunter's criticism, around the false imagery that we see and statements that are throughout the film. And um, and also through my work in looking at innovation and research, I, I really believe that also the film really leads us down. First of all, a very American approach, apologies, Hunter, to the way in which we look at renewables, which is predominantly profit motive, which is not the case in many other parts of the world. In particular, because in Europe, we're looking at a transition to climate neutrality, and we know that we need to wean ourselves off fossil energy. So I will, I will leave it at that in terms of my introduction, but just add that I fully agree with what I heard from Hunter. I think the film not only is wrong, it demonizes the wrong people. And it does not do a proper comparative analysis of what we have seen from the energy sector over the many years in terms of the way in which they've produced lies and fake facts. But what I will just end with is we have to remember that Michael Moore is a provocateur. And that in essence is what this film is all about. It is a provocation. The problem is, will people who see it only see it as a provocation? Or will they see it as an underlying truth and therefore fall into the denialists and all of the incumbents who are trying to push us away from moving into green industry?
0: Sandrine, Wouter, are you there or you have to re-log in? Okay, let's go to Kingsmill.
3: Well, hi. Um, my name is Kings Malbon. I work for uh, Carbon Tracker as the strategist there, and um, I, I, I struggle to add too much to pan this shamefully poor um, piece of analysis. But um, I'm a finance guy, and um, I, I just I think the first point to be made is that a lot of the analysis, a lot of the data, is basically ten years old. Yeah. Um, so you know they're looking at solar panels. And, EVs and the situation as it was ten years ago—that's that's just idiotic. Um, the 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 point therefore is that as a result of using this very old data, they missed out on a spectacular amount of change. The ninety percent fall in solar costs, the wind costs, and battery costs in the last decade has been really amazing. Um, which then I suppose brings me to the third point, which is that it's completely dumb to to ignore reality and and to be locked into the past because it condemns you to failure um i I would make one point in the film's defense which is i think there is one area they do um they do make one good point which is it's very dumb to burn biomass to make electricity um but the point is everyone agrees with that and it's including incidentally bill mckibben so it's not like it's an original point it's just as with any sector uh the uh Analysis and, and technology moves over time and certain things work and certain things don't. And um, uh, so that's correct to say that biomass for electricity is not a great idea. But uh, the rest of it is just flat wrong, as my like, uh, dear colleagues have been saying. And then I'd also echo what Hunter says, which is absolutely shameful to, to launch into an attack on Bill McKibben, who has undoubtedly given his life and his time and his expertise to try and help the rest of us, and, and uh, to attack him like that, I felt was just wrong. Mm-hmm. Know do.
0: know yeah, here we are again. Yep. Fantastic.
2: Okay. Okay. Okay, okay, we're, we're back. That, uh, last point, or do you want each of us to first go through our, our input, and then, and then we'll go into the detail?
4: And you,
0: you yeah. what, I'd, what I'd like is, is 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 to introduce each person to briefly say who they are, what they're doing, and what was their impression of Phil. Uh, Kingsmill, are you finished with your commentary?
3: Yes, sorry, I should have made that clearer. Um, Thank you, Robert. Okay, okay. All right, uh, Jochen, would you please tell us who you are, uh,
0: what you do, and what was your impression of the movie?
5: Jochen, there was an N like nanny. Thank you for introducing me right, Robert, big achievement. I am the climate impact investor. Uh, We invest across all of our portfolio with positive impact on the environment, on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We have venture funds, green growth funds. We just launched the Climate Endowment Group, which invests across all asset classes with positive impact on the environment. And all of you are perfect um, for people to join that somehow, very, very useful. I found the movie, uh, I found it very sobering that such a movie should get financed, uh, but I think it's also an inspiration to us that we should really make a movie with its paths and the right news, uh, and the right data, uh, and with some great movie star in it that will attract everybody's attention. I think that's the lesson learned. Um, from Germany's point of view, um, I think uh, Kingsville, beforehand mentioned... Uh, before we got live here that you know it's really, this is a key time we could not have begged for a better chance to really tackle the climate change issue. But the battle is, is really up on in the air. So in Germany we have people on the Conservative Party who are saying we should stop all subsidies not to fossil fuels, but to renewables. We should abolish the idea of a carbon price. On the other hand, we've uh, helped to create a NGO called German Zero got to get 150 people who put together a plan how Germany could be at zero emissions by 2030, not 2050, but 2030. And we've come across a number of technologies now which are really impressive, which could get 100% of energy, not of power, but of energy for electricity, heating, industry, transport, fully deployed without emissions by 2030 by, for example, deep geothermal, where you drill deep enough uh at low enough a cost without the fracking technology that used to be used that causes earthquakes. Uh, So every coal power plant can be turned into a a geothermal power plant at low cost. So it's a great opportunity and a very, very sad movie um, with all the wrong facts, as you already said before me. Thank you, Robert. You're muted, Robert, I think.
6: Yeah, Robert, you're
5: muted. I think Walter you're invited to speak. Go ahead, Walter. Should I speak now? Introduce
4: yourself and what you think of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Introduce myself. Well I'm um, I've turned to seventy nine a few weeks ago, which marks uh, another memorable Timeline, which is that I for 50 years, I'm now sustainable. 50 years. So 50 years ago, I joined the early Limits to Growth group. And ever since, I've been doing the same work as we all do. Hunter and uh, Sandrine and so on. Advising, consulting, science, professorates, uh, films, whatever you do think. We started engineering firm CE Delft, which is still quite prominent, 50 people, small, but it's nevertheless successful. And uh, here in this country, after a soft energy pass a long time ago, 76, I believe, uh, uh, Amory's famous work, we started uh, wind turbine uh, companies in this country. And we had opposition for about 10, 15 years So most of the windmill industry then disappeared from the Netherlands and moved to Denmark. We lost the game. But nevertheless, uh, I'm still in the game. I'm still fully occupied with uh, industrial symbiosis, uh, zero carbon uh, innovations, and at any possible level, even new wetlands we are creating, which is a successful process, 10,000 hectares of new wetlands. This country will, of course, uh, drown in about 50 years, because 60% of the country, other than your Colorado, uh, 60% of the country is under sea level. And uh, I'm now on the island, the island of Taschelling. Um, Andrina has been here. Uh, this is my house on the island where I live. And we have just uh, seen the coast uh, yesterday evening. Uh, no, two days ago when there was a heavy gale. And then you can see how vulnerable we are. The movie I thought was crap. Most of it. Um, yeah, the, the images they use, many of the images are 10, 15, 20 years old. That's amazing how amateurish you can be. But there, of course, there are also uh, and wrong messages. For instance, when they talk about biomass, you see p- pictures of the paper uh, industry where and they suggest that all these trees are for biomass but the images are originally uh, from the paper industry but nevertheless there's one serious warning in the movie which is not very prominent but it's important which is that we should not uh, be trapped by the illusion that renewables, if they are not linked to waste and squander of this economy, then the renewables don 't make so much sense. If you have two billion electric cars what in what in the world have you won uh, the tra- the traffic jams will still be horrible there will be enormous dust and and trouble and smog also with two billion electric cars and the steel industry and everything you need there. So the idea is that capitalism minus CO2 is nothing, uh, is not sustainable. Capitalism minus CO2. And that, of course, is a mistake many people in the green NGO world are making. Capitalism minus CO2, hooray, hooray, we've won the game. We have not. There is an enormous footprint also of the renewables. And of course, that we have to be alarmed about. Because that is a vulnerable part. Part that the opposite that you're talking about, Jochen. The the opposition is, is of course, abusing all the time. So that's my short impression.
6: Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Arthur.
0: But if okay, if there's kind of universal acceptance that the movie had a lot of flaws. What was surprising is that it got also incredible praise. Uh, so many people thought it was fantastic. It was inspiring, uh, wonderful. Most of the tech people who understand sustainability and reference were not very happy, as, as most of you. So what is it that is within that film that seems to be touching a chord of Americans, Europeans, or the oil—obviously, the oil industry—but what is it that uh, people seem to like about the movie?
1: There are many people who, rightly, are scared about the way the world is going. The uh, Walter talked about uh, capitalism and that left unchained, it is destroying life as we know it on the planet. And merely saying that strikes a chord in many people. And the scene at the end of the little orangutan saying, like, business as usual, we will crash and burn. In the meadows, the other authors of Limits to Growth, pointed that out back in 1972, the first use in the English language of the word sustainability. The Club of Rome has been pointing this out ever since. And many of us continue to say, we have to reinvent everything. We have to reinvent how we do business. We have to reinvent why we work. We have to reinvent how we make and deliver all goods and services. We have to manage all of our institutions to be regenerative, particularly of human and natural capital, the two forms of capital that we are losing, that we're liquidating in order to create more manufactured and financial capital. As the great economist Herman Daly pointed out, that's bad accounting. And we know how to reinvent essentially everything. So Amsterdam is now working with Kate Rayworth, taking her concept of donut economics. Kate, another member of the Club of Rome, and using that as the basis of their COVID recovery. The city of Los Angeles is talking with Kate. Uh, here in Colorado, we're we're trying to craft a COVID recovery. Based on regenerative principles, the work of John Fullerton, another member of the Club of Rome, we have all of these answers. So let's do films about those and about how, yeah, we can turn away from the destructiveness of what a friend of mine calls capitalism, the idea that you exist to serve the economy which exists to serve finance. This is crazy. But that criticism of capitalism struck a chord with a lot of people.
0: Uh, that you have to leave uh, at um, 3.45. So I'll, I'll let you take the next point. What? It, what how was the film received in the UK and by the corporate community that you're engaged with from Carbon Tracker? where they're saying, oh, finally, somebody's saying some smart stuff. You were wrong, Kingso. You're muted,
6: Kingso.
3: Sorry. Uh, In the UK, the debate is, shall we say, less polarised than in the US. And um, we we obviously have the Committee on Climate Change and we have a relatively clear political consensus behind the necessity for change in the UK. So I I think... um, there's less polarization of society and therefore less uh, desperation to, to, to search for vindication of your views, even if they're um, using incorrect data. But uh, I, I think um, the, the, to speak to the wider point about um, the need for looking at the world and dealing with the world in a new way, that's a completely uh, accurate point, uh, which is that we have a world, which, fails to tax pollution in, 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 uh, in, the, in the way it should be taxed at the moment. Um, so speaking as a finance guy, all these untaxed externalities are, are just ec- dumb economics. Um, and you know, if we want to rescue capitalism, I say this to all my uh, Republican friends, we actually have to tax the externalities properly and that's the right thing to do for, from an economics perspective as well. Um, The the other point I would also make, uh, which we've had some debate on in the UK, is uh, this idea about um, fossil fuels, as as it were, being a little bit like a hunter-gatherer approach to society rather than an agriculture approach to society. So if you're a hunter-gatherer, you can only kill the elephant one time and then eat it. And then eventually there are no more elephants. Um, But of course, agriculture, when it came in um, several thousand years ago, made possible a a massive expansion of the... the, um, the, the the opportunities for humanity, and I think it's actually the same here. Where if we can exploit the uh, uh, the energy of the sun and the wind uh, to uh, a much greater degree, rather than hunter gathering our fossil fuels, then we actually, as humanity, will be in a much uh, more sustainable um, position. And I think the way, just to conclude, the way to look at this is a little bit like fish docks. So if you overfish, you have no fish docks, no fish left at all. But if you take uh, uh, a certain number of fish every year, then you can fish forever, and and this surely is the great opportunity that the exploitation of renewables now gives humanity: the ability to be self-sustaining, and the ability to have proper, reasonable, cost-effective, long-term solutions. Uh, I'll stop there, Robert. Thank you. Sandrine, you work with uh, the EU, you're active
0: in the EU taxonomy. Did the EU at all comment on the film of Planet of the Humans? Uh, were there some fans? Did they say this is ridiculous? Uh, we're going forward with Green New Deal. What, what was the reaction of the, the EU policymakers regarding this film?
2: None that I'm aware of, to be frank. Um, first of all, I think we have bigger fish to fry now with COVID. So um, I think the attention is there. <laughs> But, um, but maybe just a few points to, to build on that and why is there no big reaction, which is similar to what actually Kingsmill has just indicated, that there isn't this polarization in Europe as much as there is in the U.S. You know, even Poland, the Central and Eastern European countries agreed on the Green Deal. They didn't necessarily all agree on the way in which we should implement the Green Deal, but they all agreed on the Green Deal. Also, all 28 finance ministers before Brexit all agreed on sustainable finance and a shift towards carbon neutrality as the way in which we should create the underbelly of our financial system. So you don't have that same polarization. Beyond the fact that we know that Michael Moore is a provocateur, um, I think two things are really important to note. The first thing is, I learned this morning that actually, due to copyright issues, it's been pulled off YouTube. So, does that say something? I mean, for me, not only were we looking at old imagery, were we looking at strange depiction of heroes for many parts of the community as demons. They're just, for me, throughout the film, I almost felt like somehow the, the kind of the, the renewables community had pissed off Michael, and he decided to make this film as a vendetta because it was so inaccurate and so blown out of proportion that it didn't resonate at all with me. The only thing that resonated, and I think the biggest learning for all of us is is to ask ourselves exactly the question that you asked Robert, why is it getting traction in the U.S.? And the reason it's getting traction in the U.S. is because there is such a strong incumbent, high fossil energy community, and also this desire to name and blame um, through conspiracy theories that actually don't exist, but you have to find a reason for everything. There is some rationale in what has been said through this film that I do think we have to learn from. One is, as I said in the beginning, the United States has been driven by profits when it comes to shifting to green, much more than the EU. Why? Because they haven't had the policy or the regulation to force them to move in that direction. Why has Texas embraced renewables? Because Texas believes, at least those that have invested, that they could make pretty good profit margins on renewables. First, solar is run by Republicans, not by Democrats. Let's let's be clear in terms of the difference with Germany, not that our power companies don't want to make profits too, but I was sitting on a panel yesterday with CEOs from Vattenfall, from NL, from SSE, from some of the big power companies who are all saying renewables is the future. We need to shift. We have the lowest cost curve we've ever had. We, this is the time to wean ourselves off oil and gas. We don't need subsidies to oil and gas anymore because obviously we're at zero dollar barrels. So the power sector is indicating the Green New Deal and sustainable finance and new sustainable investment in renewable energy efficient technologies, smart grids is the way to move forward. That is the way in which we are planning for Europe. So I think there's, there's a big difference in terms of the United States. And I found the film unbelievably, again, I apologize Hunter, American in its approach because it didn't, every time they asked about what about the German case? No one knew anything about the German case. And that is fundamentally flawed if you don't start to compare what else is happening in the rest of the world. Maybe the last point, and this comes back to COVID, which is now in a COVID world, we need to talk about resilience. And this comes back to some of what Hunter was saying and Wouter. The Club of Rome has been saying, and this was the ending of the film, that overconsumption, no matter what it is, So even substitution towards renewables is not going to save our asses. The fact is we need to think about upstream, how human beings treat resources, how they consume, how they impact the environment, what their footprint is. And that's what the real film needs to be about. And then how do we look at the tensions between people, planet and prosperity to ensure that we enable the right models to take into consideration a real equitable world where energy is not overconsumed, and where people have access to the energy that they need. And we come back to sufficiency and also what is essential. And I think post COVID, the open consciousness of most people will be, what are the essential jobs? What's essential to me? And this is the moment to really hit that over consumption discussion now on the head.
0: Um, Before going to Wouter, I wanted to hear from Jochen with an N at the end. I was reminded there's no M. Um, So you're very familiar with the German situation. There were some amazing uh, comments made in the film about the German energy um, situation that were completely opposite for what we were reading in press releases. Can you clarify that? Were they accurate or were they wrong in the
5: Um, So we come uh, through a period now that, thanks to global warming, we just had two months of um, extremely sunny uh, and dry weather and windy weather. And we basically had, you know, day after day of German power being 100 percent renewably supplied. Uh, Just come from a meeting with um, EMBV, which is a leading German utility That was 85% nuclear and uh, coal 10 years ago, and it's now 20% coal and nuclear and on the way to go to 5% by the end of this year and zero within two years. Um, In Germany, we are indeed uh, very sadly known for having not, well, Gladly known for having started the energy transition, but we're now falling behind. There's a, mm. there's actually a coal power plant in Datteln being opened by Uniper this summer. So that's as pathetic as it gets. Uh, our leading bank, Deutsche Bank, has introduced a new hashtag called "Positive Impact," uh, but they still lend to coal power plants and and, and, uh, and uh, you know weapons and all sort of stuff. So some things are not as perfect as they are. Having said that. As mentioned before, there is now real will on one hand to really move forward. Um, I think we have, you know, we have more members supporting Greenpeace in Germany than any party. The aim of German Zero, which is a new NGO that's come up, is to have a 67 percent, two-third constitutional majority across all parties by September 21, our next election, for a law to make 1.5 degrees constitutional. Uh, and to introduce a carbon price that reflects the real cost to society. Uh, The plan German Zero has developed so far is uh, proposing concrete measures to get to zero emissions for Germany by 2030. And they've done an amazing calculation, which I would love all us white guys in the northern hemisphere to remember. One of the reasons we've been negotiating for so long is that, of course, the injustice that's happening. If we just took the first of... Uh, January 2020 and looked how much tons of CO2 could we still emit if we wanted to e- reach 1.5 degrees some 800 gigatons I believe and divide that per capita then Germany and the US have to be at zero emissions by 2023 any more emissions for the US or Germany would be above the budget that is still fair if you just from now on consume what's left so we really have to move fast Thanks to the UK is actually passed us by far with five tons per capita. Denmark has passed us by far. So Germany is falling behind. I'm afraid Germany is following the Kodak model, inventing the digital camera, dumping it, and then going bankrupt. So Germany now has three million unemployed. History, uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So really, Germany needs to be stimulated, needs to be stimulated in the right way, needs to have positive energy transition measures put in place. But the battle is not won, but uh, we have to fight it hard. So we're moving ahead in Germany. We're definitely 100% renewable power. It definitely worked every single step of the way people said it wouldn't work, but it does work. That we still have lignite coal is a shame, completely unnecessary. That we in- subsidize imported oil, gas, and coal is also a shame, but hopefully we'll get there in the next few years.
3: And by the way, those who didn't
5: know, Wouter is in Holland. He didn't say Wouter. Everybody knows where you're from, but in case. You said you're gonna get flooded, so <laughs>
4: you're welcome to Germany when you do. Well, I feel very much at home, as you know. There, Berlin is my second hometown, more or less.
0: Out there, um, you have a lot of relations with uh, large industrialists, government, um, did the film impact any of them to say, "Oh, we better maybe rethink this whole focus of green, deal, sustainability, renewable energy? Maybe Voucher wasn't right. Maybe we should, you know, go the other direction."
4: Okay. Well, the chairman of Shell about ten years ago said in a uh, uh, well a, a friendly book on my career. Don't believe Wouter, because in five years, he is always right. Don't believe him now, because in five years, he is always right. And uh, (laughs) it's it's like, uh, anyway, uh, it has not affected the the movie, any industrial viewpoint or political uh, position here in this country. Uh, Friends of mine are in Shell, but the most important ones are in the Rotterdam Harbour which is the largest or the second largest harbor in the world. That's where all companies and all energy flows and resources come together. The chairman of the Rotterdam Port Authority is Alec Castellani. He's a former Shell, the medical officer. And his staff are all more or less activists for renewables. They have just constructed the largest wind turbine park in the world. Uh, the, The monster is something like 240 meters high. And it's, I believe, 12 or 15 megawatts. It's just unbelievable. On the most expensive soil that you can imagine, because it's an artificial part of the harbor into the North Sea. And that they know that their future is there. But the focus is changing slightly, and that's the subject that I would like to raise in this company, which is about the resource uh, essentials of the whole problem. Energy is a, an aid, an instrument, but resources, that, those are the things that matter. Resources are also the heart of limits to growth. We are running out of resources. And for all the renewables and satellites and batteries and whatever you have, you need something like 40, 50% of the periodic system. And as we all know, our friends in the Club of Rome, Vala and Harold Sverdrup and Harry Lehman, and universities in, in Scandinavia, five or six, are working on the resource issue. Uh, our World 3 model, which we used at the beginning of Limits to Growth, has been evo- um, developed over time. And now we have World 7. We can now in World 7 calculate something like 70 different resources, whereas in, 19- in uh, 1970, we could only handle six or seven resources. If you look at them carefully, you see that most of the essential resources run out of not in actual stock, but in availability, affordability, and so on. There's a great difference in how much ore there is, how much resource there is, and how whether you can get it or not. And that, of course, is not on the agenda. And it means that if we keep hammering on the beautiful successes of renewable energy, we should also take into consideration that this part of the picture is not being calculated. And what you will see is in the years from now is an enormous battle for those last resources. If you look carefully, you see that the Chinese are now now entering the age of confiscation. They are confiscating cobalt, sodium, lithium, neodymium, they are confiscating it. They are robbing uh, the mines, the resources, the places. Because they know strategically that without these resources, the renewables will not be successful. And they can beat the world politics by confiscating these resources. The only place that I know of are, who are dealing with this issue is the Pentagon. They understand. And there are within the Pentagon activities going on to confiscate as well, to start strategies, to develop strategies, to. Uh, take, take, need to take care, but to take hold of these resources. And in the EU, there is a uh, policy statement which is not quite similar as what I think is necessary, but it is very close. So let's let's realize that the stories about yes we ca- yes we can wind and sun and also we have to deal with this issue. Then I've la- one last remark for you, Hunter. When you're talking about solar, I'm living in a country where um, 9 out of 10 uh, months a year, weather is not very very uh, supportive for solar energy. I've just seen a, a concentrated solar power plant in the south of Spain. And I would love to have much of that instead of in this dark country where it's always raining and so on, and where it's always dark. You live in a beautiful, sunny place, especially up there in Colorado, but it's very different here.
0: Sorry, Robert, is that okay? That's perfect. Uh, Hunter, did the film have any influence other than the superlatives from, from some individuals? Did it have any influence whatsoever on the direction or investment in infrastructure with respect to renewable energy in the United States?
1: No, and neither will it. Uh, Let me briefly make a defense of the business case and of profit with the caveat that that's not what life is about. And that what Sandrine is saying is, is critically important as a, as a human species, we, we need to find ways to live in one planet living. However, for most business people, if I can show you that behaving responsibly to people and to planet will enhance your profitability, we don't have to argue about the rest. They will bake it into their business model and make it happen. I just find that a, a quicker way of getting things done. And no, uh, any business person who has to meet payroll, who uh, pays attention to a bottom line, will look at the film, look at the the dates on which the the information in it came from, and just laugh. So it's, it's going to be, well, and now it's been taken down, which is a good thing. It's just going to be ignored. Kingsmill's analyses are showing that peak fossil is what Kingsmill 2023. Although with COVID, it may even have been brought closer to us. And by the way, give Mark Campanelli my love. But we are facing, what Kingsmill's analysis has has shown is that we are facing a, a set of stranded assets of 25 trillion of today's dollars. So it is financially urgent that we make this transition in a measured, managed fashion that we don't just say, oh yeah, we can, we can keep on doing what we're doing. No, we're looking at an economic collapse on the scale of COVID coming right on the heels of COVID. If we don't recognize that investing into a finer future, Investing into the technologies that will give us fair, just, abundant sources of energy, investing into a circular economy so that, as both as are saying, we can use the resources that we have dramatically more productively. This is the way to create jobs. Ten times the number of jobs created per dollar invested into renewables and energy efficiency than invested into any central power station. So I don't even pay attention to people saying, "Ooh, the Chinese are gonna build all these coal plants. Oh, Germany's gonna build all these coal plants. No, they won't. They'll say they will, they're not gonna get built. It's like the nuclear plants that get started. They're not gonna get finished because it's fundamentally uneconomic. Now, you throw enough money, you put enough engines on it, you can get a bathtub airborne. You throw enough money at it, you can make any technology appear cost-effective. And we today, you and I and the world's taxpayers, spend $5.2 billion a year, that's $10 million a minute, making fossil look cheaper than it really is. How about we take some of that subsidy and shift it into life-supporting technologies, into rebuilding our cities so that we don't need cars? so that they're built around people, not cars. I drive an electric car, and I love it. It's powered by the solar on my ranch, but I'd much rather be where I already need to be, not have to drive to get anywhere. So I am a technological optimist. I do believe we can solve the problems facing us through technology, but I also believe that we have the fundamental question before us of what kind of a life do we want to live? I used to spend a lot of time on airplanes. For the past three months, I've been at home on the ranch. I've been able to watch spring happen day by day, the little leaves unfolding, the squirrels coming, the wildlife, the elk drifting across the ranch. Normally, I'd be on an airplane. I am loving staying at home. So I think when, even when the restrictions are lifted, a lot of us are going to start saying, is this the life I want to live? And how do I live a life lightly on the planet, in community, with people that I know and care about, building resilience into how we live our lives, so that our supply chains are not breaking down. I'm very fond of Scottish whiskey. We make good whiskey in Colorado. We can have a dynamic global economy. So long as we ensure that every place on the planet has its own integrity and every ecosystem has its own integrity. If we do this in balance, we can have that good life. And, I and again, I wish somebody would make a film about that.
4: There's a film in the making about that. There is one.
0: Fantastic. Kingsville, you seen has- that
4: And I will send them to you also, Hunter, okay? Yeah. You said that
0: you had had to to leave. I just wanted to give you a a final comment. so is Dominic and Boris basically going to have their own coal-fired power plant and everybody else will have renewable uh, the same way that some people can go visit their family during COVID uh, lockdown?
3: (laughs) For special rules for special people. Um, actually, if you're not know, Robert, um, m- maybe it's misunderstanding or timing. I have a, a further hour. Should you need me, um, but uh, c- can I just? Um, I think we started this conversation, and and we did say that somebody should say, "Look, what is the solution?" I felt I should maybe quickly set that out, and maybe a couple of make a couple of further points. Would that be okay? Um, Please. so so look, I I think we have to realise that the um, the the renewable solution is composed of four parts. Um, so, first of all, the efficiency you massively increase the efficiency of, of how you get stuff. Uh, secondly, you decarbonize electricity, which um, we've already kicked off uh, quite impressively in a, a wide number of countries. Thirdly, you electrify basically what you can. You start with cars and you electrify everything else you can electrify. And then finally, um, as the uh, uh, Energy Transitions Commission says, the final piece is uh, you, you use some variant of hydrogen for. So hydrogen for winter storage, hydrogen for PET cam, hydrogen for um, heavy trucks and airplanes. Anyway, the point certainly is that there is actually very clearly documented solutions. We don't know how to get to the final solution for everything right now, but that doesn't really matter because um, it's all about starting the process. I think that's a point worth making. Um, the second point is that, as, as uh, Hunter very kindly said, in a weird Carbon Tracker, two years ago, put out a note saying, look, the speed of growth of solar wind means that fossil fuel demand is going to peak in. Um, in the mid-2020s. And lo and behold, COVID's brought that, that moment forward uh, by years, possibly to 2019. And the point simply is, is, therefore, that we're surrounded today already by peak fossil fuel demand. We had peak demand for fossil fuels in Europe in uh, 2006, if memory serves me right, 14 years ago. Um, peak demand for coal globally in 2013. Peak demand for ICE cars in 2017. The point simply is that actually the fossil fuel system is incredibly vulnerable, and it knows it. And this, I think, is the point we need to emphasize. The The people who are opposing change are the people who stand to lose tens of trillions of dollars um, from fossil fuel rents. And they're the people who are trying to prevent change uh, from, from taking place. That's the real debate uh, that needs to be happening. Um, uh, and and then, then if I may pick up on one, one uh, excellent point that... Um, was also made, which is, you know, is there enough land in the world? Again, I, I, I defer here actually to the Rocky Mountain Institute who did the work, but, you know, 1% of the world's land is sufficient if you put solar and wind on it to provide all of the world's energy. So it's not as if we're lacking in space uh, to, put, uh, to make this renewable energy revolution happen. Thank you.
0: Uh, Hunter, before I go to some... Yeah. Just one quick comment. Go ahead, Hunter, just briefly.
1: I would add a fifth item to the solution, which is regenerative agriculture. We know how to take carbon out of the air and put it back into the soil. Using approaches like regenerative grazing, the work of the Savory Institute, we can We've done a back-of-the-envelope calculation. I wish somebody would, would do this with some real rigor. If you take the best regenerative agriculture practices and implemented them on all of the world's grasslands, now that's a big if, but doing this is more profitable than the way we graze animals now. Over 30 years' time, We could soak up enough carbon to get back to 280 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. So balancing energy efficiency, the electrification, the use of renewables, and regenerative agriculture pulling down the carbon load, we have a way to a future that works, of living within Kate Rayworth's donut of below the planetary boundaries, but also meeting all of the human needs And giving all people on earth a life of dignity and sufficient.
0: Sandrine, um, you were talking, I think Hunter was saying we need a film showing about the positive, but if, if the Green New Deal seems to be the strategy going forward, do we need a film to promote renewable energy and sustainability?
3: You're muted. You're muted.
2: No. Okay. Yes. Yep. Super. Um, we've already had we've already had a film which was totally different from this approach, which was the film Demain, which was actually produced by mm-hmm. France and shown in I I don't know how many different languages all over the world, on the internet, also at several UN, um, both sustainability, UNGA conference, and also COP26. And, And the image there was very much what we've been talking about, which was a real balanced approach between the sustainability solutions across the full value chain. So not just on renewables. I think the problem with this film, again, was it's Overemphasis on renewables rather than looking at other more micro solutions rather than the big macro solutions, where of course most of the big bucks are being made. And yes, sometimes for the wrong reasons. So this is where for me there was a total imbalance. I think demand really showed the beauty of how communities can get involved in actually generating their own energy, being part of the energy system. Looking at circularity, looking at regenerative agriculture, etc., and that's part of what I wanted to say is we need to get away from this pure technocratic conversation around technology. Um, as the chair of the the new think tank for research and innovation at the European Commission, we've been asked actually to look at the societal and economic implications of innovation and research. And and what I find flabbergasting is this obsession that innovation is purely determined by a technological solution. Innovation is not just about technology. We have innovating governance structures, we have innovating politics, we have new types of materials, we have processes. Um, Any of us who have worked on manufacturing sites, including myself when I was actually helping site managers and environmental management systems, we were constantly innovating not necessarily new technology, but actually optimizing processes so that we could get much more out of the existing technology that we had. And I think that is fundamental as we move into, again, a post-COVID world where we have to talk about swift shift into a new paradigm because we know we are going to be hit, and we already talked about it in our planetary emergency plan at the Club of Rome, which is we had a convergence pre-COVID of two major crises, climate and biodiversity. And now we've just hit, been hit by a third one, which by the way, was actually a symptom of the first two, which is health. If you look at the three, and if you look at the economic ramifications of all three, if we are not smart as those who are change agents, who are involved in different sectors, whether it be, The investment community, whether it be the business community, whether it be the policymaking community, if we don't optimize some of the solutions and look at the win wins across process and technology and behavioral change, and then obviously the implementers, who are the key actors in that? Is it local communities? Is it local authorities? Then we're going to get nowhere. Coming back to the Green Deal. That's what the Green Deal needs to do. The Green Deal through its climate pact needs to ensure that whatever comes out from a policy perspective then trickles down into key stories and messages as to why this is important for people. In particular at a time post COVID where we're talking about health, survival, livelihoods and you know, massive unemployment and massive restructuring of the economy where we're gonna see much more flexible working, which actually means, by the way, that we're gonna have more land in urban centers because most of that office space has been totally left empty for two months and will never fill up to full capacity again, ever. Planes, same thing. What do we do with aviation? So I think that the point that was being made by by also many, uh, both Hunter and also Kingsmill, which is, I think, very important, Let's not only think about those five of efficiency, renewables, electrify, hydrogen, and regenerative agriculture. Let's think about them as system interfaces. Because if we only think about them as silos, again, we're screwed. We're going back into 20th century thinking. We have to look at where do we optimize value chains amongst all of them? Where do we ensure, obviously, that circularity is being put first and foremost? And how do we ensure that then the people that are going to have to implement this on the ground understand the ramifications of well being, of greater health for them, and why this is a series of win wins? Last point how do we do this in practice when actually we've got all of this pain and suffering that's happening right now? And I think that's really important because Hunter and myself, we live in beautiful environments. I think we all do, probably. We can go outside. We can breathe the fresh air. We can talk about the unbelievable spring that we've had. What about those women that have been beaten? What about those seven people or 10 people that were stuck in apartments? And the first thing they want to do is go out and consume. How do we get to them? And then what do we do with all of those small and medium-sized enterprises that, you know, the last thing they want to hear about is being more environmentally friendly when all they want to do is survive? What we need to do for them, as well as big business, is ensure that we have in place the right just just transition mechanisms, the right funding mechanisms, whether it be through new bond structures, whether it be through investment funds, whether it be through new assets that we're looking at, we have to fundamentally shift the way in which we're investing and think about people's lives and livelihoods alongside environmental criteria. That's why our bailout schemes cannot be unconditional, which is what's happening right now. And look at the millions that was just given to Lufthansa today as well. Aviation has to have conditions. All major sectors must have both social and environmental conditions attached to bailout. And that hopefully will trickle down back to people. Now what it won't please is shareholders and major CEOs that are pocketing half the profits. And that's, that is the difficulty, but so what? We're gonna to have to come back to real leadership and that means our leaders need to have balls in order to do it properly. Thank and by the way, sorry, but the, the ones who are really leading properly don't have balls, most of them are women, sorry. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Sandy. Yeah, yeah. Joachim, being one of the few true uh, financial engineers of this group here, uh, all of a sudden we've seen in the last 10 years that governments have limitless money. When they used to say we have no money for this, we have no money for that, all of a sudden in the financial crisis and now with COVID, money is flying a tidal wave of money to do stuff. Uh, but not always connected to behavior. Uh, most, I was shocked at the statistic, mass majority of the profits made in the last 10 years by the listed companies in the United States, where that profit was used for share buybacks, not investing to build the company. And now their hand is up, please save us again. So, Not all of these bailouts are being tied to uh, change in behavior. Um, You you have a lot of relations with the German government and with banks. Uh, Is there any interest at all to tie in bailouts or money? I'm happy for the first time that the government has actually discovered there's actually millions of people who need help, not just large corporations. Can you address that? Thank you, Robert. Um,
5: we've had congratulations from Konstantin von Arania, for example, for the German uh, government's decision to meet, match any funding for a clean tech startup with 70% of the capital they're looking for. So that's a, an innovative way to, to put money to work. Um, there are many other issues which I find extremely worrying, like the KLM and the Lufthansa bailouts. What's the point of spending five billion dollars to the euros to, you know, to, to to own an airline? That's sort of a, what a crazy dictator somewhere would do. But why would Germany do that? So um, I see it. The what I would like to love to stress is that, it, as you said already, Hunter, it, it it pays to do what this is. Profit drives people. Um, I'm very happy that the German sovereign wealth fund with 24 billion in assets under management where the market was down 25% by having excluded oil, gas and coal, fracking, uh, cluster bombing and weapons, all sorts, the fund was down 4%, right? 4% when the market is down 25%. Long, short strategies that were oil, gas and coal short, long everything else. Up 10 15% this year when the market was down 25%. So you can make money doing this. The problem is that, um, and we don't need much money, it's also an amazing figure. The Pope had pointed out, he asked me once in a meeting, you know, are you saying we just need about 63 euros per person in the EU or like, you know, 800 euros a year per person? This is sort of the price of an iPhone or a fake Gucci handbags, all we need per person in Europe at least. What I find even more stunning is that on EU current accounts, we have 16 trillion euros, 16 trillion euros cash lying around at zero or minus 0.5, minus 1% interest. If we just got 1% of that, sorry, 1 trillion of that, 6% of the sum, just in the EU alone, and we put it in equity for a pool of money that would then do only wind and solar, only the proven technologies, you leverage that 10 times, you recycle it 10 times, that's enough to get us to zero emissions globally. So it's a tiny amount of money. The $1 trillion is also equal to 0.3% of global financial assets. 300 trillion are global financial assets. $1 trillion is 0.3%. And what's sad is that we haven't been able to move the money. And what I found very inspiring at the uh, diverse invest movement was when Ellen Dorsey and I sat down with, with CalPERS and, and asked them, now, why did you finally join the divest in this movement? I said, oh, we had lots of shareholder pressure. Like, lots of pensioners called us. So I sat next to this woman and said, excuse me, and how many called you last year? Oh, she said, two. Two, right? So just pick up the phone. If two is pressure, pick up the phone. I mean, there's so much capital out there being mismanaged because we don't own it. The, the outgoing chairman of the institutional investor group of climate change, Donald McDonald, said not to invest your savings, your equity today and leverage it at zero interest rates, at the lowest interest rates at Mesopotamian times is a crime against humanity, right? We we as citizens have to put the money into the box and say we take equity risk and then we borrow and leverage as necessary because that's leverage for good cause. We're not doing that yet and that's really the, the thing we need to move. We need to change the financial um um, situation: the, the regulation to allow more people to invest. The typical endowment approach in the U.S. generates 10 to 12 percent returns. A typical European pension fund only 3 percent returns. Right? It pays to do it. So let's let's try to work together to move capital quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, there's money to be made. It is. People are scared. I'm very very encouraged by your view. Kings that the other side is is. Uh, is breaking down, but also at a dinner with Alan Dorsey and uh, the former head of Exxon, the former foreign minister of the U.S. said, Mr. Tillerson, I asked him, well, after Paris, you, you now have a clear view. Would you please stop funding climate, you know, denial? He says, no, no, that's my job. <laughs> well, so literally he said, no, I'm going to keep on funding climate denial, right? Climate change is not happening. It's all fake news. So you've got to be aware that the other side is very powerful
0: and hopefully we can now pull together and really make a difference. Thank you. you. Uh, Hunter, uh, go ahead. I just wanted to ask you something briefly. There's an awful TV show in the United States, which I love, called Billions. Uh, It's a parody of a hedge fund manager in Connecticut, Cohen, who, who lost his license. So the show now, this year, has discovered impact investing. So normally it's just slash and burn and, you know, make as much money as you can, destroy everyone and be corrupt. But now we have, they're, they're interviewing energy companies, telling them we can greenwash you by investing your money supposedly uh, responsible, uh, which I don't know if that's a breakdown or a breakthrough.
1: It's a bit of both. Um, I also know a little bit about finance. I am uh, the chief impact officer of a little company called Change Finance. We built the first truly fossil fuel free exchange traded fund. We rang the bell on Wall Street about three years ago when we launched it. And it is doing just as we designed it to do, tracking the S&P. So you can invest with no fossil in your portfolio. and meet the benchmark. The amount of interest now in impact investing is enormous, which is why all the big guys from BlackRock and Morgan Stanley and JP and, and all the rest are saying, oh, you want impact? We have an impact fund. The trouble is they've no idea what they're doing. <laughs> and there are authentic impact funds that you can put your money into. Everything from Domini, which has been doing this for gosh, a better part of 20 years now. And what it's showing is that you can get the kinds of financial returns that you need for your pension. And you don't have to be invested in any of the stupid companies that, as Kingsmill has said, are going to be stranded, are being stranded on a daily basis. You can invest with your values and do just as well or better And indeed, in the COVID crisis, BlackRock is realizing the companies that are leading in environment, social, good governance, the ESG metrics, are outperforming. Surprise, they're better managed. This is not rocket science. If you're paying attention as a manager, you're going to catch all the other mistakes that could harm your bottom line. So this is why now one in four dollars under management are invested with some sort of a screen. Trillions of dollars are being divested from fossil energy. What, do you want to be the last one holding the sack? Get out and get into funds that will help build a finer future. It, you'll feel better. You'll make more money. It, what's not to like?
0: Yep.
6: Robert, do you want to... Walter, to-
0: you, you often describe the financial system as this casino that you don't understand. Um, and I, I, I understand that. I was, felt I was surprised uh, uh, how relatively ignorant most of the people in the financial sector were was. Uh, and I once said to the head of Goldman Sachs in the, in the Benelux, I have a feeling that the investment manager is wrong half the time. And he said, no, no, three quarters. So I was thinking, would I go to a doctor, a dentist, a car mechanic, uh, a plumber, if 75% of the decisions they made were wrong? Uh, probably not. But it's okay for investors, investment managers to be wrong most of the time. Um, so you spoke to many, many people. You brought brilliant, innovative ideas to investors and sometimes frustrated that they didn't want to uh, invest. Their goal was to die rich as quickly as possible. So have you changed your opinion? Have you had a little bit more compassion for the investment manager? Or have you decided, no, they're just a waste of time, I need to go directly to
4: the family office, the actual asset owner? Well, there are a number of things. First of all, the casino is an expression designed by Hazel Henderson in 1982. And I added to the concept the word flash capital because by that time, capital started to be flashed around the globe in just a few seconds. That was the start of it. So the global casino and uh, one of the companies that I helped to our uh, understanding environmental managers was called Procter and Gamble, so the word "gamble" was very efficient here. Um, global casinos still exist, but it's being tied, being tied up more and more and more. I'm very close to the European Central Bank uh, for many reasons. The um, uh, <laughs> recently there was a beautiful event in the forest here on my island. I once or twice a year I play the role of Gandalf. I sit in my Gandalf uh, uh, robe under a tree and there were 50 managers of the Dutch Central Bank sitting around me like uh, like mushrooms in a forest. <laughs> and for, for a full day, we talked about the Global Casino and the role of central banks. It was beautiful. I had no beard, but uh, my white hair, it was very long at the time. What happens is that for now, suddenly, the... Central banks are playing a very different role. If the trillions of trillions of dollars that are being mentioned are now shuffled and invested in the good thing in post COVID uh, recovery and whatever, that is not the financial market, first of all, it's it's central banks' money creation. And of course, money creation has been with the central banks for hundreds of centuries, or equivalents of central banks. Uh, it was stopped by interventions by J.P. Morgan and, and so on and Goldman Sachs, especially uh, during the peace talks in Versailles in 1919. Then it's all stopped because uh, the private banks took over uh, money creation, which they had tried before. And there was one guy sitting at the Versailles table, 19 1990 It was John Maynard Keynes. He proposed euro bonds. The allied forces should guarantee eurobonds created by them together because that would have helped recovery it was of course then knocked down and declined and we have seen the results and the catastrophes that lesson has been learned and what I learned from the central banks people now is that for that reason all this money is being created to post uh, post corona reinvent the world and exactly what you said, Robert. Now suddenly there is enormous money available. In 2008, Wall Street journals said it's too expensive to, to save the planet. It's too expensive, and to to guarantee their uh, that argument, they of course had to deny that the planet was in danger. So they started the merchants of doubt. Uh, that was a, why. And for, for this obvious reason, now they can no longer deny that the problem is there. And as a result, we have this v- big shift in money creation. It's not coming out of the socks of grandmother. It's coming out of the little computer which says, here is my finger. I print the next trillion. And the next trillion is completely new. And of course, for that reason, Sandrine, you are so right because that means that the European Commission has now a potential which they never had before. It's incredible what is happening now, and we should make an enormous advantage of it. Because no longer is there any argument to not invest in a different future. It's no longer there, and I see bankers all over all over Europe under, to begin to understand it, and the old guys, indeed, the men. Those with the no balls, as you call them, Sandrine, the men with the no balls, they, they, they are running away. They are running away, and it's it's incredible. And in that, women are taking over. When will you be president of the European Commission? Is that next year? Or when is it? When is it? Very close, huh?
2: Thank you for that, Walter. But I think we've got luckily we have we have President von der Leyen and I do think that she has totally changed. Absolutely. And you know, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I I have worked with incredible male colleagues who have shown leadership throughout their lives. And there are many out there still. But I do feel that it's interesting to see this shift. And, and in fact, building on this, Robert, if I may, I wanted to, to indicate that the, the beauty of some of this is that we, we've realized, at least in terms of the feminine leadership, that they don't want to get caught up when they can in the politics. If you look at those economies that have done the best coming out of COVID, it is women who, first of all, were straightforward in terms of immediately putting in place the security and also the health restrictions necessary for people. And then the second was many of them, and in most of the well being economy women who have introduced the well being economy, so Scotland, Iceland, Finland, as we were saying, and New Zealand, are all also the same women who are now the most resilient post-COVID and have demonstrated that. So I think the learning here is not necessarily that women are better than men. The learning here is that perverse narcissism that rules some of the countries in the end, and look at the United States with the continuous death toll and COVID, are so caught up in servicing their own egos and only a certain part of the population, that actually it's biting them in the ass because you are as vulnerable as the weakest link. And that is what's starting to come out. And I think that's really important for all of us also who are systems thinkers and who believe in sustainability. This is now the premise of real collective thinking and the fact that we have to be collaborative, we can build up very strong local communities, but as Hunter has indicated, we can continue to be globally minded. And I think that is absolutely fundamental. Rather than accusing the Chinese of doing things that actually they didn't do and not being properly informative in terms of COVID, we should be working with the Chinese. We should be working, as many of us across Europe have been doing, in order to learn from COVID and really build up much more resilient societies in different ways, not only based just on Western thought. Post-COVID econ- economics, exactly.
4: That's a, that's, a, that's a pamphlet I have written. It will be published in July.
2: Fabulous. Well, before that, Wouter, we will be setting up a platform of new economists at the Club of Rome multidisciplinary platform, bringing in the finance community, Robert, as well, because we are fundamentally convinced at the Club of Rome that the finance framework and structure needs to change away from just financing change to change finance, which will then be the underbelly of beyond GDP, new indicators to grow thinking. And and COVID is the perfect testing ground. I mean, let's be very clear. We have just gone through and we're still going through the most transformative incubator experiment we as humanity have ever been through. And we have seen that through this period, we've been able to break through bureaucracy, bring down red tape when we needed to, invent ourselves or reinvent ourselves as some of the restaurants have become completely different service providers. The aviation sector in some cases also became new service providers. Now we did it for all the wrong reasons, right? It was disaster reaction rather than by design. What we need to do now is design that resilience, build on what we've just learned and ensure that we actually don't have to again react to the next disaster, but put in place the new financial and economic systems that we need to make us much more resilient.
4: Perfect. Beautiful.
0: Kismil, um for those of you who are not familiar with Carbon Tracker, I think it they uh, created the most influential report for the financial sector, uh, basically saying that most of the, the oil and gas companies were committing fraud uh, on not giving the full disclosure of the value of their assets. And I remember I was speaking once at the Financial Times and everybody was shouting, ESG data is not good enough. ESG data is not good enough, over and over and over and over again. And I stood up and asked, how come you guys never say that the financial data is not good enough? We just oh. had financial crisis, uh, Madoff, Parmalat, Enron, WorldCom, China Hustle, Trillions lost. You never say a peep. And there's never been a company that went bankrupt on bad ESG data. It was actually the ESG analysts that predicted BP's problem. So your report, the carbon tracker report, was it was huge. I don't know if you guys know it. It was huge. Uh, and now you're, you're expanding into other areas. Are you getting more traction from the institutional investors? Apart from press releases that they're putting out, we're going to do a lot at Impact and Great. But do are you allowed now at the, the mafia dinner table? <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, well, I, I think we're, we're always going to be slightly on the outside. Um, you don't want to get too close to the uh, system you're analyzing after all. Um, look, I, I think... Um, we have, as you suggest, uh, we've been continuously advancing the argument. And, and, and now we're looking at this size and the vulnerability of the entire fossil fuel system, for example. And, and we're identifying the parts of the system which are most vulnerable in those areas, for example, which are continuing to expand the system, which are in areas which are um, already seeing peaking. Demand. So we, we haven't sat on our laurels in our analysis. I think I also want to come back to the point you made about ESG. Um, a lot of ESG, as many um, people would recognise, um, has been slightly corrupted by people doing greenwashing. I don't think that's a very controversial statement to make. But um, the, the the point is that actually, given that change is for real, given that um, companies, uh, given that prices of fossil fuels are declining for real. That means that companies are facing reality. And and actually having a great greenwashing ESG score isn't very good when you conflict with reality. So those people, for example, who um, engaged with the coal sector all the way down, trying to persuade them to change the way they were operating and and continue to hold their shares, they lost money, hand of fist. And and if you look at many subsectors of the fossil fuel system now, you'll see massive underperformance for years. And you see the threat now of more and more stranded assets and stranded um, companies coming. So I think it's just going to get considerably worse. Um, I I want to, if I may uh, bring into the debate a couple of further points. The first is we haven't talked at all yet about China and India. And China and India, to be clear, are not merely um, both billion person economies with relatively low levels of energy use, but also are responsible for half of the growth in expected energy use in the last, next 40 years. It's actually these countries to, and the rest of the emerging markets we need to be turning to. And there's a huge story about the emerging market energy leapfrog to new green renewable technologies, which um, I, I think uh, has, has been extremely well highlighted by Sandrine. And the Opportunities that these countries now have to grab these new technologies are quite spectacular. And then the final point I would make is in this green build, and maybe Jochen could, um, as as a specialist in this area, could could um, draw this one out a little bit more. In the green rebuild, you know, from our analysis now, the reason why policymakers are going to embrace green technologies is not just because um, they they uh, they're better for the planet and because they reduce the pollution. They're also cheaper. They're local. They have more jobs, they're much faster to implement, and they have a proper long term future. I mean, it's actually a complete no brainer for policymakers right across the world to embrace these technologies. There is no energy trilemma anymore. It's solved.
5: Thank you, Kingsmill, for that. If I may tee up here, yeah? Robert. Yes, as, yes as so
0: you did I, I um, have <laughs> I wanted to ask you something because um, you've been pushing very much and predicting the collapse of the energy sector, and now we have oil that went to minus forty dollars. About if you take it off my hands and store it somewhere, you know, I'll give it to you and I'll pay you to take it off my hands. Having being one of the only people in the entire impact investing. Area that actually worked on oil rigs. I actually did work on oil rigs for several years in in Iran. I was always surprised that it took so long for it to get screwed up because I didn't find any competent people making holes in the ground. So uh, now that you seem to be vindicated, how are you going to uh, accelerate that vindication and really shift the zeros in the other direction? First of all,
5: I think one of the things that we have to learn, which is difficult, um, as a good Protestant, you always uh, put yourself last. But I think we should put ourselves first. I spent five weeks in Bali doing panjakarma treatment. I feel better. That's good. <laughs> and we should tap ourselves in the back. So so running a long, short portfolio for the last 15 years, going short oil, gas, and coal, long, everything else, we return on average 20% per annum. Right? So it's very, very nice, and we should just promote this and and, and tell people you can make money uh, doing good. Um, um, I really think it's very important to focus on China and India, as you say, Uh, Kingsmill. That's a a huge, huge driver there. And also, I think, I hope that COVID will really change the world, the way we we operate. As as you said, Sandrine and, and Hunter, we're circular economy, local economy, local supply chains. One of the funniest things I find about subsidizing fossil fuels is that we're not only paying for Saudi leadership and Russian leadership, which aren't exactly, you know, people who share values all the time. Uh, We also have an amazing event where I've been to see a senior manager of Gazprom now, and he confirmed... That the methane craters that we have in the north of uh, Siberia are moving closer and closer to the infrastructure of the gas production, and that in any point in time, what it is, 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 is methane escapes. There's a big balloon, empty gas pressure missing. The earth collapses. It looks like a crater hit from above, but it's not. It's a hit, crater hit from a block. If such a crater hits the Yamal infrastructure, this senior member of the board of Gazprom says there could be a 30% drop in Russian gas production tomorrow any one day, okay? 30% less gas production in Russia means that probably Europe and Germany will just be damn cold, right? At the same time, you have prom representatives and GazUni and, and, and Wintersal in and Germany joining debates on whether Germany can reach uh, carbon neutrality by 2050 and argue that there isn't enough space in Germany to have all the renewables we need. They're lying all the time, but the reality is it's completely not sustainable i are very happy to be invested in a company called NextWave that has just come up with a technology to make CO2 emissions, solar wafers with 70% less CO2 emissions and solar power, another 20% cheaper than it is now, locally, anywhere. So you can do it in Germany, Colorado, wherever it is, and you also get away from a current system, which is also unsustainable, where we're going to ship huge amounts of steel and glass and aluminum. Around the world, we buy all these modules from China. Now, this new company, Next Wave, Next Cell, Next Module, will be able to produce locally, using local resources and recycling uh, locally. We have a circular economy model that exists today, and so I think that's the exciting things. I really love you, Robert, for your beautiful statement that you prefer working with bandits than with impact investors. You know, there's just too many nice guys on this table. And the the goal is to get the hundred biggest bandits to turn around, uh, you know, that they just go for profit. But I think we can, we should be able to do it. I'd love to spend one second on my my favorite topic, which is the CO two price. Just to make sure you all heard this topic in clear numbers. For my birthday, I invited the author of a key report by United by the German Environmental Agency, and she published that the estimate of damages caused by one ton of CO2, this is the official German agency, over the next 100 years is 640 euros per ton. 640, right? 640 euros. The German government is really ambitious, it's moving towards a CO2 price of 10 euros now, but 640 is the damages. The only way you come to the 180 euros that Fridays for Futures uses at times is by discounting the future severely. In a zero interest rate environment, that's senseless. It only makes sense if you respect the future of our children or our grandchildren less than our future. If you don't do that, if you have zero interest rates, we should be counting 640. And back to your point, Hunter, we have to include the agro and forestry situation. A friend of mine, Norman Foster, has been buying lots of land in Australia to stop fracking. Owning ex-agricultural land, which he bought at 200 euros a hectare, he planted some trees for 200 euros, for some work for 200 euros, for 600 euros he planted a forest, which over 20 years would capture 100 tons of CO2. So we're buying one ton of CO2 captured at 6 euros a ton, at one less than one hundredth the cost of society, which also puts into perspective investing in South Africa or in Ghana or in Nigeria, if you can invest there at one hundredth the cost, you really... You, know, you can have as much of devaluation, as much of, this of corruption, as much as the regime change. You're never going to lose 99%. Well, you can, of course. Never say never, but you will hardly ever accept for in Russia in 19, 2008. Lose more than 90. But even 93% would be okay. 99% would. It pays to go to emerging markets. It's so cheap to go there. We should go there. Uh,
0: um, I have a question from the the audience here for all of you. Joseph, was wondering he's he's very he's quite concerned about the attacks on activists like Bill McKibben in the movie uh and wanted to get your opinion about that what do you feel about these personal attacks uh uh on Bill McKibben any anyone can sir
1: unconscionable wrong and should be actionable it's just it's just wrong.
6: Bill is truly, truly a. Anyone muted? Muted something?
3: Um, well, just also you... to say, um, just, just while we're waiting um, for, for a moment, just vis a vis Bill, and uh, the, so the film says specifically that he endorsed biomass, um, which indeed he did for a couple of years. Um, and then he understood the facts better and and he's published a lot of work since then saying that burning biomass for electricity is a bad idea um so i mean i i i, to- I think it's totally wrong to I, I totally concur with hunter it's it's wrong to attack these heroes and it's also factually wrong uh, the nature of the attacks placed upon him
2: and maybe building on that Robert, what I wanted to say is that this is, this is the problem with the film, right? And this is where it's actually catering to current um, US public kind of conspiracy theory obsession, which is that it pigeonholes everything. And, and I, I think we, we need to take a step back and the problem is life cannot be pigeonholed. I mean, there has been an evolution in Bill's thinking But also biomass, the whole conversation we've had in Europe, which has been very different, is around what is sustainable biomass. We know, for example, that if we practice greater regenerative practices, if we look at proper land use, we can think about biomass for certain applications as long as it's sustainable. We also know there's a difference between Homegrown biomass and the importation of whether it be sugarcane and practices in tropical forests, such as in Malaysia and Indonesia around palm oil. And, you know, this is, however, what I do think, and this is why I'm so pissed off that this film was allowed to go out because it could have actually been quite interesting if we instead unpacked the real problem of all of this, which is if you look at, for example, biomass. Part of the reason why the whole palm oil issue came up is because the cosmetics industry and the food industry was pissed off at its use in energy. It was going to actually take away some of their own materials. I mean, there is a, yeah, I worked in biomass for many years, and if you look at the history of biomass and the biomass discussions, It's really fascinating, but we didn't get any of that because instead we decided to create demons, pigeonhole certain attitudes and not look at actually the fact that this is much deeper, much more complex than we all think. Now, to come back to the demonization, I don't think it was just Bill McKibben, by the way. I I mean, if you look at Al Gore, if you look at Branson, um, if you look at anybody that touched with a 10 foot pole, the renewable sector, they were accused as as just profit-mongering. And I I think that is the problem, that we're not allowing for balanced approaches and we're only allowing for movies that are provocative because that supposedly is getting an audience. I think we need to question that because that is the way that Trump is speaking. That is the way that some of our leaders are speaking. It's now becoming completely acceptable to only accuse people and be provocative rather than to try to look at how we can work together across different political spectrums and across different business leadership. I mean, if you you look at most of even the oil and gas companies, they are now looking at working with, and they're doing it far too late, and we can accuse them of all kinds of things and they should be totally pulling out and not just diversifying. But the fact of the matter is they've been working with renewables companies for ages. Um, There are, Business leaders that have been trying to do the right thing as well, and and of course, all we saw was the negative side, and and those that supposedly went down the wrong pathway, um, when again they rectified some of their decisions.
4: Mute. I. There's everybody's mute now. No,
6: we can hear you.
4: Walter. Okay. Can I talk? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> About accusing Bill McKibben, uh, you remember how Jim Hansen has been attacked. Um, early warners uh, like myself have been attacked. I've been attacked many times, even uh, attacked by cars running over me in the middle of the night in a snowstorm. Because early environmentalists were very dangerous. We were extremely dangerous to the establishment. It was a part of the game and it was frightening. Phone calls in the middle of, night, of the night, we will go after your children. Things like that it was normal, a normal event in the early days of Friends of the Earth where I was involved and all that. So um, Dave McTaggart, who founded Greenpeace, he was attacked. So it's a part of the game. And it's an old story. Uh, Of course, it's wrong. It's ethically wrong. But let's realize the following. Uh, One of the reasons why the movie is made and why it is so about uh, conspiracies is because COVID and all that relates to it is frightening for many people who cannot understand. And fright and fear, if that dominates society, as we see all around us now, of course, creates an enormous fertile ground for this kind of conspiracy theories. And I think that's perhaps Michael Moore was not, or the one who made it, Gibbs, I believe. Uh, They were not abusing this event, this uh, pandemic, because it was not yet there. But the reason why it's so well received is because it's launched in the middle of that global fear. And there are many people in in power who have... uh, enormous advantage uh, in making use of this fear in the first few weeks of corona uh, there were people who made hundreds of billions of dollars out of uh, what you guys your financial guys understand uh, going short at the stock exchange i don't know how it works but that's what they did about biomass what people don't know is that if we run uh, if we don't use natural gas coal or oil anymore then there is still a need for carbon not for co2 but for carbon as such and carbon the only source of carbon by that time is biomass from wherever it comes and biomass will be used for food for uh, energy and for materials uh plastics no longer made out of oil or gas. Then where should all the polymers come from? And the best biomass, of course, as you say, they will come out of uh, regenerative agriculture. Things like uh, sugar beets, for instance. Sugar beets are far more productive in terms of biomass than trees. And there's a huge sugar beet industry in the north of the Frieslands, in Germany and the Netherlands and Denmark, and they are now turning their sugar beet to to construction. Car- yeah, uh, carbohydrates. They are excellent, excellent products. So Sandrina, with you, we need biomass for all kinds of purposes, and there is no ethical cha- ethical difference in using it for food, energy materials because. All these three applications are a part of human needs. Let's not have a struggle about food first. The three applications are a basic need. And another thing I would like to say, we are very optimistic in this this seminar. We say that we are going to win and that for all kinds of reasons, prices will go up, the right ones, and the prices go down, the wrong ones, or the the up. or the other way around, but there's still an enormous enemy or a wrongdoing at the, at the other side. And i gave give you one example. In this country, we have the best steel industry of Europe called Tata Steel. It's owned by Tata in India. But they are extremely innovative in every respect, and we need them badly because we want 20,000 wind turbines in the North Sea. So we need them. But the chairman has been fired this week. Why? Because the shareholders in India want to confiscate the steel industry for their own gains and whatever. And and they don't want the Europeans to compete. So let's kill our own companies in Europe because then we can uh, pull all that production to India to places where we can, can be in full control. Those evil powers are there. And they are very dangerous. And what we should like to promote, we, we should promote is let is let us invest as uh, governments and as European unions uh, in European Union. Let's invest ourselves. Let's not only support KLM or Lufthansa, which is a stupid thing to do, but let's support steel making and uh, sugar beet and and grasslands uh, what, whatever you said hunter i realized that the savory, savory institute in, indeed so let's do that and let's realize that these powers are now popping up because the battle will be will get worse and worse losers you had you talked about billions and billions trillions in stranded assets there will be an enormous army of evil attacking us in the, in the years to come. An enormous army of evil. You look like a cowboy hunter, so you're well equipped for that. <laughs> most of us are not. Kings, uh, you, think you, told me you
0: have to leave shortly, so I'll just give you briefly the last couple of minutes. How does it uh, feel to be the flavor of the month, or were you also attacked by everybody?
4: Am I the flavour of the month? What do you mean?
3: Kingsman. Oh, sorry. King. Okay, okay. Sorry. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I think, I, I mean, I think it's nice for, for all of us, I think it's, it's nice that some of the arguments we've been making for many years of, of being vindicated and precisely Sondrine says, and we need a completely new way of looking at the world. Um, I, I want to introduce, if I may, two final um, ideas into the debate. The first is, um, there is a really amazing 80-20 rule here. Um, 80% of the world lives in countries that import fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's in the interest, consequently, of, of most of the planet, including the planet's poorest, people in India and, and Africa and Southeast Asia uh, who desperately need energy. It's in their interest to be able to get um, renewable energy and to have an rene- emerging market renewable energy revolution. That's the first point. And then the second point, just I was playing around before this call with some numbers. Um, so the average American uses six tonnes of oil equivalent per annum, um, which is... Um, over 100 kilograms a week, incidentally, of uh, fossil fuels. Um, to get the same amount of energy, you would need about a ton of solar panels. Um, so six to one. But of course, it's not six to one, because you use the six every single year, and the solar panels last for 30 years. So in terms of the impact on the planet, we have to realise that the, the, uh, um, it's about 150 to one in terms of the volume. And of course, you can debate what, what's inside that volume. But as a starting point, fossil fuels are dramatically heavier in their impact upon the planet than, than all of these other solutions we've been talking about. Um, so Robert, I, I hope it's right to introduce those two observations and I, I, I should dash off. Uh, that should dash. Thank you very much, everyone.
5: Can you from one to six, so one to 150
0: quickly? How do you get to 150? Uh, one to um, six, I, second I Hunter, I wanted to give the uh, Kingsmill, you have
3: to leave now, you said? Just yeah, thank you. Multiply by thirty for thirty years. Thank you. Right, thank you.
2: Will you send us those figures? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I was just saying goodbye to King.
3: Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, Jürgen, um you're you're all now the flavor of the month. Everybody wants you around, um, but it wasn't always like that. With uh, were you also attacked, like all of us?
5: Um, well, first of all, I wanted to thank Wouter uh, for being so courageous and, and a hero in that sense. Um, I signed up to sponsor Greenpeace, I think, in 1990, and committed to spend a percent or so of my income. And then it took until 2011 that Charlie Kleissner said to me, Jochen, hold on a second, you're now one of the biggest sponsors of Greenpeace, but you're investing in oil, gas, and coal companies. Are you noticing anything? And I said, oh. Not oh, really, I do honest business and I donate for good cause. What's wrong here? And my wife took me to the north of Russia where every year five million tons of oil are spilled into rivers, which is as much as BP lost in the Gulf of Mexico. The people that live on these rivers have cancer with a frequency of, I think, 80 times higher than the rest of the world. The babies born there have three fingers or five fingers or whatever, two heads, And uh, as we went there to look at the oil spills, we became friends with a local KGB, which has been hunting me ever since. So I'm officially a beautiful German art movie about the KGB uh, Kalashnikov guys chasing us (laughs) across the the Russian tundra. And then to get us finally, they grounded our helicopter, uh, not giving us permission to fly. So, But that's that's as scary as it gets. And a little bit of a masky show, they call it, which is when the people with the black masks and the face masks and the Kalashnikov storm your office and take all the things out. But, you know, I think it's okay. We, uh, uh, I think it's worthwhile to stand up for good causes. And uh, I have to say, you know, when I see all of us, we are extremely privileged. We, live in, 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 we don't live in Russia. We don't live in Brazil. I, I've met a few uh, people at the Diverse Invest um, community who work with people in Brazil who literally get shot at the moment, right? So therefore, I do think it is extremely urgent that we uh, get armed, as you put it, I would put it, and and my view would be if you can help me support the NGO called German Zero, which will not only develop a plan to get German to zero by 2030, but aim to get a two-thirds majority for the plan and aggressively sue people that... Tell lies, that slander things knowingly, that slander Bill McKinnon and others, right? Because the opposition, we found out that you know a company like BASF in Germany, right, has a list of environmental activists and is, is placing honey honey traps on them, right? Trying to get, you know, people involved in sexual activity with people who are not the married people and, and them. And that's how the German industry, even the German industry is defending itself today. So we've got to really put together some money to, to, to pay for lawyers, to pay for public relations, and to get Germany to a two-third majority. If Germany adopts a true CO2 price-reflecting cost and a plan to go to zero budget by, two, by 2030, I think then we have a chance, and we have got to move capital. So so I don't know if I've been threatened, but I've been threatened indirectly, and uh, I've always been lucky of a foreign passport. Uh, but I learned a good we have saying
0: a in Russia. Russia. I'm, I'm not, which I'm is that
5: if you shine the light, of the car coaches, they run, the Russians say. So don't be
4: afraid, dogs that bark don't bite. Robert, you're mute. Robert, you're a mute now.
2: You're on mute, Robert.
4: I think I can read
0: Sorry. the question. Agree on, uh, the agree so. on the mis- mis- of the film, but I miss addressing a issue in the discussion: the concentration of renewable energy production hands a few, sometimes the prolonged arm of those that also fund exorbitant tech. That is the opposite of needed bioregionalism. How to solve that? And we yeah. have eleven minutes. To-
2: I think that's a really great question. And I think that is, for me, actually, that was the most important point that came out of the film, which was how do you get out of the usual suspects getting involved in the energy industry? And and that's why I think that if we now look at resilience building, and if that is our premise, facing not only COVID, but as we said, climate crisis and biodiversity crisis, then we need to look at new types of energy systems. We've already started to see distributed systems which have much more prosumer approaches in in some municipalities and some localities where actually people own the energy system, can produce and sell back onto the grid their energy. Those are the types of systems that we actually need to foster. The other key approach is, again, I I think this to and I just had a conversation again on this power panel, but also with with others um, in big consulting firms such as McKenzie and, and systemic and others, which is we have to get out of this continuous sectoral analysis. Because coming back to my original point, if we went back to what Kingsman was actually saying around these five points and we had as the fifth one regenerative agriculture added, which is so right in terms of the renewable solution, right? The, the aspect that's so important here is that these are integrated solutions. We're no longer just talking about energy by itself. We're talking about optimization of our mobility systems and our energy systems at the same time. That means, by the way, I'm not 100% proponent of electrification. We didn't talk about some of the reactions around batteries. I agree, a dependency on materials with regard to battery infrastructure is not a good thing. And we need to think about that. So what enables us now I think as we come into the energy transition is to rethink our dependency on materials, on energy sources, on the way in which we use all of these resources. And if we can get back to optimization upstream rather than just thinking downstream, looking at demand rather than just supply and then the full value chain in between, that is when it gets really interesting. And if you bring that into a European context now where we know that populism is growing in rural communities and we're able to say to rural communities, your urban friends are dependent on you because of partly your energy sources, but also your food, post COVID food security is huge. We can start to look at the building of rural and urban communities and corridors that are looking at a nexus of different systems that are totally interrelated. That's what resilience is all about. And actually, that's what the Green Deal is talking about now, and as well as the recovery plan linked to the Green Deal. So that is when it becomes really interesting. And that's what I would respond to Ralph and your fantastic question, Ralph, in terms of you know, how do we actually look at bioregionalism or how do we look at regionalism force full stop and systems approaches?
0: Thank you sandrine vater you had one says thing we have another seven minutes so we need to start final comments and conclusions and asks from the audience
4: okay then i have one one question to uh, to you guys here um, there are three made for your information hunter there are three major grid companies in uh, europe there are of course hundreds of them but the three major ones and one is called Tenet, and I am very close to the CEO, and she she is asking this question. Every year, another 5 or 10 billion, uh, yes, billion is added to their investment portfolio. And she said to me, this cannot go on, electrification. We thought that we should limit our investment to about 30, 40 billion but it's next year on the on the agenda is 50 60 70 80. where does it stop we are going to cover all of europe with electric wiring and it's a it's an awful process and my people don't know how to stop it and where it should be stopped and we all know it's going to be very vulnerable and very idiotic where is the feedback where is the system Bouncing into its own limits, she, they don't have an answer at the, this moment. So please help us out there. She, she wants to link Sandrine with the Club of Rome on this. Super. And I should, uh, I should, as, as soon as this this pandemic is over, uh, they, the two of you should meet. Is that okay? Absolutely.
1: Uh, absolutely. In, in my. What we need is for every community to know how do you get your food, energy, water, housing, health care, sanitation, transportation. You could add education, culture, but those core seven. Resilience, true resilience is knowing where your life support system comes from. So in energy, microgrids. I have a nanogrid solar on the ranch batteries in the garage an electric car i am more resilient than my neighbors the but you the live in a- I eat regeneratively grown on my own land when i need something that i can't make myself i trade for it with neighbors the more that communities can have this kind of self-sufficiency Then the more we're able to trade globally for the luxuries that we want, for the culture that we want, but we're no longer dependent on distant, brittle supply chains. That applies to grids, it applies to the stuff that we're shipping across the world. We know how to build truly sustainable regenerative communities. We know how to build regenerative companies. We wrote a book that was a report to the Club of Rome called A Finer Future, Creating Economy and Life. We know how to do this. Now is the time to have the political will to insist that this is how we rebuild from COVID. And Sandrine's work in pulling together and running the Partners for Planetary Emergency is the most hopeful thing that I know of in all the world. You guys really do it.
0: Beautiful. Okay.
2: Thank you, Hunter.
0: Thank you. Uh, okay, Jochen, go go final comment. Yeah,
5: so looking at Matthias' question, how do we combine the narrative of sustainability being commercially attractive with that of less of all being the only way? Um, you know I I, uh, I really appreciate the, the culture we have at, at the tonic impact investing Network where basically the question is how much is enough people are asking themselves the questions do I really need to have you know one car two cars ten cars three three whatever houses yeah. uh, and try to look up what how much is enough and, and try to maybe I, I, I find it fascinating that I think today we can supply sustainable, solar power on anybody's roof in the world through a app on any handheld device. And that's, so I believe we can all live in abundance, but we don't need abundance. It's enough to live in sufficiency, right? So I think we, by, I don't know, breathing in, breathing out deeply, uh, becoming more conscious, meditating more, uh, spending more time with yourself, with your family, with your loved ones and meeting more virtually and traveling less. We can, and be as sustainable as you just described Hunter, I think we can have a wonderful future and uh, that's how we get there.
0: Thank you all very, very much. Uh, I'm honored that you took the time to share your thoughts, not only about the film, but also the picture of our economic system. And uh, for those who, this will also, this has been taped, so it will be online for everyone to watch uh, later. We'll put it up on our YouTube channel. Uh, if there's anything that I can do for you anytime, please let me know. We're extremely grateful for, for sharing your, your insights and your genius and also taking a positive view and not always trying to tear things down. And we've been at face a very long time. They didn't just start yesterday. Thank you to our guests and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.